The Lord our God consecrates us by his own word read, as well as preached. And uh, these texts in Genesis are really the, the seed of the Great Commission. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is Genesis 12, 1-3, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And I remember that the Apostle Paul is quoting from these texts and says, remember the seed is Christ himself. So we're always looking forward to Christ in these texts. Genesis 15, 1-6, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, that is, the Lord said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. In Genesis 17, 1-8, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came, he is the great seed of Abraham, and said to them, to the eleven who were gathered, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, that is, to keep or to do all that I have commanded you. And behold, stop and think about this. I am with you always to the end of the age. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our Lord stands forever, to which you respond by saying, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. 
Our Lord, if you have ever cemented words to our souls, take what will be preached, and we pray that you will cement those words into our inmost being so that we never forget them and always live out of them to the glory of the gospel made flesh, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I think for today you're going to probably want to turn to the, the last page, next to the last page of your bulletin, <coughs> where you have notes on today's sermon, because I do. You're going to be using your pew Bibles today, and we're going to be, I'm going to be taking some notes, I trust. It is hard to believe <laughs> that we've come to December of this year of our Lord, 2022. And uh, believe it or not, we have been in the next week, it'll be three months that we have been in this facility, how time flies. And I always, as I come to the end of a year, think through uh, wrapping up, usually wrapping up a series or at least uh, bringing it to some climax and, and then uh, thinking about the next year, and I'm doing that. Uh, but we still want to finish up the series um, that we began when we came into the facility. Here we stand. Here we stand. And um, the reason for this is that we want a manifesto. Why do we exist? What, what are we about as a church? Okay. And so today we're dealing with, as you see in the bulletin, the mission of the church is... And uh, we're not dealing with, and, and I, I, I know there's going to be a lot of technical differences here, but they're important. We're not dealing today so much with the church as an organism, as an organization. Now, what do I mean by that? An organism is made up of cells, and, and you are the cells that make up uh, this organism that we know of as the haven at Comac. And, and there are things that, that you do as cells, as part of the organism, that, that the church is not called to do. Some of you are electricians or contractors or general contractors, homemakers. Uh, whatever your work is, that's a very important because we're to do all to the glory of God. But those aren't, those aren't the callings of the church. Now, what do I mean by the church as an organization? Well, we dealt with it last week. As an organization, as you look at the church, there's the saints, there's a body of people marked out by baptism who are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, together with, with bishops or overseers, there's a governing body, and deacons, those who, who serve representing Christ in the church. That's a church as an organization. Or the other text we looked at last week, what, it, what is the church? Well, it's the, it's the house of God, it is the church of the living God, it is the pillar and buttress or ground of the truth. Those are, those are all describing the church as an organization. And that, that's what we're going to focus on, the church as an organization, as a body and what it does. And that's why the title that is here is The Mission of the Church Is. Why is the church on earth? Some people will listen to that question and say, it's a good question. I don't see that it's got a purpose. And sadly, many, if not most, Christians fumble when they're asked the question, why does the church of which you're a part, why does it even exist? 
What's its purpose in the world? And that's, that's what we're going to deal with today under the title of The Mission of the Church Is. What are the things that, that govern the church's budget? What are the things that govern the way a building is used? What are the things that govern your service and what that service looks like? Okay, th- those are the things that we're dealing with today on, on the mission of the church, not the mission of you as individual Christians or as families. That is a very important place, as you'll see, but the mission of the church. Now, let's begin. It is always easy for a preacher to, when you're talking about what something is, you always begin with what it's not, okay? What, what the mission is not, the organization of the church. And, and the reason, it, it's very interesting that for the last, I don't know, the last almost half a century, Believe it or not, there have been huge scholarly debates among people who believe the Bible about how you even answer what is the mission of the church. And the reason, one of the reasons why it's difficult to, to answer that is you don't ever find the word mission in the Bible. You, you have, you have the, the, the word to be sent with a commission, the apostles. The word means to be sent with a commission. And, and so you have that language. You have the language of sending, but but you, but that's a verb, okay? God sends, but as a noun, mission is not in the Bible, which is which is really quite amazing. But look, you'll find out for yourself the word is not there, and so that that's what makes it difficult when you're dealing with covenant or justification or adoption or these things that are clearly mentioned in the scriptures. You can search the scriptures and look at texts that deal with it and come up with a definition, but you really can't do that with this very commonly used mission. The church's mission is mission. Uh, the, the, the church's mission is whatever it would be. Okay, so let's, so, so let's look, though, at what the mission of the church is not. And I'm, give, I'm just giving you a sampling of them. The mission of the church is not to bring the world back to Eden. God forbid we should even think like that. Number one, that's impossible because Eden is a pre-fall situation until the fall. And the fact of the matter is, Adam and Eve were on a probation period where they had the possibility of falling. Why would you, even if you could, why would you want to go back to that situation? So that's, that's, not, that's not the work. of the, And believe it or not, you can get books that will espouse these ideas. I don't recommend them to you. I'll give them to you in distilled forms. The mission of the church is not to transform the world and bring in new heavens and new earth. That's, that's a, within the Reformed community. That, that can be kind of a common idea. Uh, we are to transform the world. New heavens and new earth is the pattern. The Holy Spirit gives us the down payment of these things of heaven, and that's our work. Our, our work is to try to bring in a transformed world that will be a picture of new heavens and new earth. And you'll have people who hold that view that will even say, well, in heaven, there's going to be a glorified comac. Uh, that, that kind of a thing. There's so much continuity, they believe, between the new heavens and the new earth. In this world, that's, that's not the work of the church to transform the world. Others, and I'll lump them together, social justice is the work of the church. I'm not even sure, folks, what that word means, social justice, or what that phrase means. But, or relieving poverty. We want people to enjoy the good life that the gospel brings, or feeding the poor, or housing, or job training, or economic assistance. Those are things that in their place are very important, but that's not the work of the church, folks. 
You may do that individually. There may be points. We help out Island Harvest where we assist, but, but it's usually or always for another purpose in view, not bait and switch. Uh, but but we, have, we, we have another purpose in view, even when we do these things. The work of the church as an organization is not showing the gospel. Or as I've read this, I wince when I read this, and I've read it in more than one place. The church is to display Jesus, and sometimes it even needs to use words. Hello? It's very difficult to preach without using words. And as you'll find out, preaching is an inherent part of what the church is about. And that sounds good, okay? We're to display Jesus, and sometimes we even use, use, need to use words. Sometimes we do need to keep our mouth shut to the glory of God. But that's, that's not what the work of the church is. The work of the church is not bringing shalom to the world. Shalom, the peace of God. Now, we want... God's blessings to come to people. That, that's a given. But that's not the work of the church as an organization. Or people will simply say, well, the work of the church is to serve. It's to serve the world. Well, we should be servants. We've learned that. But that's not the work of the church as an organization. That's not the mission of the church. Or, or this one, that is, frankly, is very captivating. There's a very thick and fascinating volume by a man named Christopher Wright, called The Mission of God. And basically what Dr. Wright says is, the mission of the church is joining God in his mission to bless the world, right? Promise to Abraham and you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And therefore our work is to be a covenant partner with God in his mission to work in the world. And, and that sounds compelling, but there are things, brothers and sisters, and a lot of them, that God's mission does that we don't do. God brings judgment on the wicked. Now, there's a place for the magistrate to, to do that, but that, that's, that's part of the mission of God. But that's not our mission in the world. God's mission is to, is to change hearts. We, we can't change hearts. And so, again, see, these things are very attractive. They're very compelling. And there's, frankly, truth in each of these as far as it goes. But the question is, what is the mission of the church? The mission of the church, and this I want you to write down and memorize it. It's very easy because it's Trinitarian. It's based on the work of the Son and the Spirit and the Father. What is the church's mission? It is to make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. And you can add, if you want, among all the nations. But it's, it's, I want to make this bite size here. It's to make followers or disciples of Jesus Christ, that's the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, not by human contrivance or games, that kind of thing, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. There you go. That's the mission of the church. Okay, It is to make disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. It's what is called the Great Commission. We have it 
We don't have a mission board. We have a missions committee, but we have a mission board out here, and that's what's on the top, the Great Commission. It's a reminder to us in the very center of the church building of what our mission is. The mission of the church is the Great Commission, or if you will, the Great Commissions. We're going to look at the standard text for the Great Commission, but then we're going to look at others that kind of flesh out what is said there. Now, you've got pew Bibles, and we're going to use them, okay? So get your pew Bibles, and I will uh, tell you the text of the scriptures we're looking at, and I want them open, okay? And uh, if you've got your own Bible, you can use that too, but I'm going to use the, the pew Bible and give you the page number as well. And let's see this in the scriptures. Matthew, Matthew 28 So you're in the New Testament, you're in the first book of the New Testament, you're about about seven-eighths of the way through your Bibles, and Matthew chapter chapter 28, this is the the, the Great Commission passage, okay? Now notice Matthew 28, and this is uh, is page number 993. And you're, notice even the color of the Bible is, is a haven color, our, our emblem blue. Okay. So in Matthew 28, 16, now it's the 11 disciples. Okay. Jesus didn't call all of his followers at this point. In the same way we have what we call a session meeting, you meet with elders, and in our case also with our deacon, uh, or you have a presbytery meeting with ministers and elders, and sometimes deacons as well, general assembly, You have representatives of the church as an organization. And so here, the 11, it's the 12 minus Judas. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, and that's significant. Galilee was Galilee of the Gentiles. You would expect Jesus would give this commission in Jerusalem, but he doesn't. He calls them up to a place known for its Gentile population, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Mountains in the Bible are really significant. Mount, in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai, God gives the law. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, on whatever mount he delivered it. There's the Mount of Transfiguration. And some, some particularly important announcement comes when God speaks from a mountain. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now just a, a note here. At my stage in life, you can always come up with things. This time of the year, people raise the question, why don't you use images of Christ? And you can say, well, the second commandment, you shall not make yourself graven images, and so on. that's the reason. But there's another very practical reason. When you see Christ, you think of Christ, you read of Christ, No other response is appropriate but worship. And when you're looking at a man-made image of not just man, but the God-man, so that even the, the winks of his eye represented deity, when you look at an image which is hardly Christ, you must worship. And you don't want to worship a graven image. See, that's the reason. And it's embedded here. You always see this in the New Testament. When people are in the presence of Christ, they worship him. That is also important for what we're going to cover on missions. But, but they worship him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. That's what we call the indicative. This is a, this is a truth whether people believe it or not. It's not, anything about, not about anything you do, that'll come up, but it's about what is true. Folks, the church is not to conquer the world. Jesus is already conquered. He has conquered the devil. He is raised above all principalities and powers and thrones and dominions. That's why he begins this way. We're to declare the conquest of Christ, not try to conquer the world. Now, here's the imperative. Go, therefore. It's, it's a very strong term uh, that means do something with this. And that, that is go and make, here's the word, make disciples. A disciple is a follower of Jesus of all the nations. And there's a lot of discussion about what nation, nation is not a nation state, which is a relatively recent idea, but people groups. So you have, you have tribes and you have languages and wherever there's a group of people that speak the same language and share the same customs and so on, that's the idea of what's in view here with the nations, okay? And, and, and then, so that's, you make disciples of all the nations. That's, that's the imperative. That's, that's the work. Make followers of Christ. And here's how you do it. We'll have a baptism in two weeks, and we'll develop this more than baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And notice here is a, this is an, uh, an indicator, a proof, if you will, of the Trinity. It doesn't say in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but there's one name, there's one God, and that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three sides of a triangle, three distinct persons and one God. Baptizing them is what? It's a mark, folks. It's, I love to tell children before they're baptized, or anyone, it's an engagement ring. The Lord says, I'm, I'm calling you to be mine. It's a mark. Okay, and, you're, and there's tremendous significance in this. God willing, when Mary and Benjamin are baptized in a couple of weeks, we'll deal with that a bit more. Tremendous significance. Baptism basically means you are marked out as dead to your past. And I'll just let that sit with you for right now. You're dead to your past. You're living in a whole new world that you can basically summarize as faith and repentance. So baptizing them into the name they're marked out to be followers of and have the name of the triune God on them. That's one railroad track. The second one is not just teaching them, but teaching them to observe. Even that's not a good way to, not just to look at, but to keep, to do all that I have commanded you. That's how disciples are made, folks. They are marked out, they are matriculated into the school of Christ, and there's an ongoing work until you get to glory of being taught all the things that Jesus commanded us. And you don't stop. You can imagine the 11th. Are you kidding? We are supposed to go to all the people groups of the world or as many of them as we can go to before you take us to glory. We, we, are to, we are to mark them out as dead to their past. We're to tell them they are to live in a whole new world of faith and repentance. They're to keep the commands of someone who in a short time is going to be ascending into heaven and won't even be able to see him. We are expected to do that. And that's why Jesus says, stop. And think about this. Behold, like the Selah in the Psalms. Behold, I am with you always, 
And you know this is not just to the 11, because he says to the end of the age. Jesus will be with his church and the work that it does for all ages to come. So you know that the great, some people say, well, the Great Commission is only for the 11. Well, the whole New Testament fleshes this out, but the very fact that Jesus says until the end of the age says, no, this is not going to end, okay? Now, next text, Mark 13 and verse 10. We're talking about Great Commission. So go to the next gospel, Matthew, Mark, chapter 13 and verse 10. That's page, appropriately, that's page 1010, 1010. Jesus, in speaking about the persecution that would come, just puts this in. And the gospel, which is about Jesus, must first be preached to all nations. That somewhat fleshes out the meaning of teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you, except the word the word preach is a more technical word, and it means the official proclamation of one sent by a king, or by a leader of any sort, in this case a king. So when a minister is ordained to preach, he, he is, and he's installed in a particular place, he is the ambassador ambassador of the king of kings not to give suggestions but to proclaim the word of the king and it's a fascinating concept it, it includes in it someone who has been with that king so he just doesn't say what the word of god says if i could put it this way his empathy is with the king himself. He knows the king and, 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 and is with him and communes with him. He knows his mind and his heart. And then in that context gives the official proclamation. And quite frankly, the proclamation, if you want it in one word, it's surrender. What's the heart of your call to every man, woman, boy, and girl outside of Christ? Surrender to the king. If he has all authority in heaven and on earth, it means that he's the Lord and you're not. And if you're going to follow him, it's surrender to follow him, lock, stock, and barrel. And so again, the proclaimer, the preacher, did not come with a bunch of suggestions and and kind of warm meditations for your life. It's a call to obey the king of kings, right? So, so, so that's the, again, we're, these are great commissions. They all are saying the same thing from different perspectives. The next is Luke 24 and verses 44 to 49. So you go to your next gospel, right? <laughs> Luke and then John, Luke chapter 24 and verses 44 to 49. This is page 1052. Then Jesus, he's on the Emmaus Road. He's with the disciples. He's raised from the dead. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And it's not saying that there's things in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms that aren't about Jesus. 
The fact of the matter is they're all about Jesus in one way or another, and he is fulfilling these things that are shadows that are prophesied in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a shadow of the Christ who would come in all of his work. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be, here's the word again, proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now that word witness is a legal witness. When you witness, folks, you're not telling people about your conversion experience. You could do that, and it may be an illustration. I hope it is an illustration. But you're not witnessing about yourself. You're telling people about Jesus. You are a legal witness telling someone the truth about Jesus. And you'll see that a little bit more clearly in the next text. You are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of things that I did. I was born. I lived. I died. I rose from the dead. And soon he would ascend to heaven. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now there's the power of the Holy Spirit. Work of the church, make disciples, followers of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. And if you look at Acts 1-8, just very quickly, you see that that witness-bearing work, go, to the, go past John, and then Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, page 1080, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you will receive power, day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and this is what that power empowers. And you will be my witnesses, witnesses of me. Yes, sent by me, but also witnesses about me and my work in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You're, you're going to tell people in the power of the Holy Spirit about me and about my work in history. And as we go on in this, you'll find out why that is of ultimate, ultimate importance. And then just one other one, Acts chapter 26 and verse 18. This is Paul. Ever thought about how remarkable Saul in the New Testament, who becomes Paul, is? Paul was on a fast track as Saul to become the leader of the Jews. Not Messiah, but the religious leader of the Jews. Uh, that's why his, in his zeal, he outstripped everyone, including persecuting the church and probably being responsible for the death of some Christians. Who's the least likely person you could imagine being converted at that time? Saul. But look at what God did. And so when people say, well, how do, you, how do you know this is true? How do you explain Saul, who became Paul? It's fascinating. But anyway, <clears throat> Paul here is explaining to King Agrippa why, what his work is. 
page 1112, Acts 26 and verse 18. He, he is to, he's being told, notice the language, the Lord is sending me, for what? To open their eyes. He does not say to be an instrument so that God will open their eyes, although that's true. Humanly speaking, the church has a responsibility to open the eyes of people. Now, yes, God can only do it by changing the heart. I know that. But in terms of human responsibility, you labor to see the lights go on that people see, to open their eyes so that they may turn, that's repentance, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's probably the fullest statement of what it is to make disciples by teaching and preaching, to open their eyes to the end that people may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And notice they turn, folks. Yes, only you know, and you have people, but only God can turn that. I know that. I don't live out of that, nor do you. Your responsibility is graciously and firmly to say to people, may I put it bluntly, turn or burn. And don't say that crassly. But that's what it is to turn from darkness to light, turn from the power of Satan unto God in order that people might have an everlasting inheritance, forgiveness of sins, and a place I go to prepare a place for you among those who are sanctified. They're made holy by faith in me. That, folks, is the mission of the church. It's the Great Commission. So you can fill that in. The mission of the church is the Great Commission, as fleshed out here, especially in Matthew 28 and verses 16 to 20. It's what? It's to make followers of Christ, followers of Jesus, and yes, among all nations, but but. We don't think like that when, you, when you're walking in Deer Park or Comac or you say, well, my responsibility is to make disciples of all the nations. What people are you meeting there that you can help become disciples of Christ, to make followers of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit? Every day saying, Lord, I can't change hearts, but use me as an instrument for working with people. Send the Holy Spirit to work to the glory of God the Father. And you'll see how beautifully that's, that's described in just, just a moment. Okay? So that's the church's mission, to make disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. Now, why is that of ultimate importance? Yes, the church is, does other things that are ancillary to that, but this is of ultimate importance why. That's why I want you to take notes. Let me give you a very theological reason, and then let me give you a very practical reason. A very theological reason, the doctrine, what God's Word says about why this is of ultimate importance. It honors what is most important to God. 
That's the profound doctrinal reason why the Great Commission is of ultimate importance. It's because it honors, it honors what God regards as most important. Now this gets us into the whole subject of God's decrees. God's decree is to glorify his Son. God's decree is to glorify his Son, and certainly the Spirit and the Father as well, but Jesus is the one mediator between man and God. It's to glorify his Son, who doesn't come as a tyrant, but as a Savior. He comes into a world that, that, you know, the flood itself, you wonder, Lord, why did you even preserve Noah and his family and the animals? Why not just destroy it and start all over again? Because of Christ. And, And that's why, again, there's a lot of difficult issues here, folks. I don't want to be light. You wouldn't know of mercy if it weren't for the fall. You wouldn't know of forgiveness if it weren't for the fall. You wouldn't know the long-suffering of God if it weren't for the fall. Does that make the fall good? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Christ was crucified by wicked hands according to the predetermined counsel of God. God's glorification of his Son is what is most important. I will... My Son will come into the world willingly, what we call the covenant of redemption. This world is going to see... God in the flesh. And that God in the flesh will so come into the world, Christmas, that while he's fully human, born of a, of a mother, he doesn't have a human paternity. She will be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit so that what is born of her is without sin. God will do that in his son. And you want to know what perfect obedience is. Don't look to yourself, folks. Look to Christ. That's why Jesus is teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you. You see the perfections of God in Christ. And he's going to die. God, the Son, will take hell itself for all of his people and die a criminal's death. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And God's not sadistic. But how else is justice going to be satisfied? You have the infinite merit of God, and you have a man who becomes sin for us. And death, the death that is brought into the world by Adam and Eve, if they'd only known what it meant. Jesus conquers that. Yes, he conquers the devil. He disarms principalities and powers by the cross. What does that mean? The devil can hurl every single thing he wants at you with his accusing power and malice. Those are blunt arrows, folks. Jesus disarmed the devil by the cross. And in his resurrection, here he conquers death. And yet he does ascend to heaven. He does reign. He is the king. He does have all authority in heaven and on earth. That's God's great work in the world, folks. Yeah, I, I mean, before, I mean, that, that's, that's like Mount Everest, not to other hills. It's like Mount Everest to a pimple. Now, Ephesians chapter 1, 
which I think we've heard a good bit of in the last few weeks. Ephesians, and you see it for yourself, and you've got your pew Bible. You move ahead, okay, past uh, Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians, and for the page number, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and following. Folks, when you get discouraged, I suggest you read Ephesians 1. Stop trying to figure out God's sovereignty and revel in it. Listen, listen. Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which means there is no spiritual blessing apart from Christ. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul cannot get away from Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. We don't bring in new heavens and new earth. God does through his Son. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. And brothers and sisters, if this church should ever lose the message that we'll be back up on that sign real soon, I trust. What is your chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. May God destroy the building if we lose that message. The gospel's not about us. It's about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And supremely about Christ. That's why it was the work of the church, <laughs> to make disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to the praise of the glory of God the Father. Okay, so, so that's, that's just reason number one. Okay, so we're dealing with why this is of ultimate importance, the heart and soul of our manifesto. Now let me give you a very practical reason. All other goals miss the most important one. Feeding the hungry, yes, the place for that. Helping people build their homes, place for that. Being a blessing to others, absolutely place for that. Shalom, giving God's 
peace to uh, that place for sure. <laughs> but all those goals miss the most important one. The most important one is people need to be delivered from the wrath under which they live right now outside of Christ. And they need to be brought to Christ to have everlasting life. People might be fed in their homes by you and drop dead and go to hell. And folks, that's, that, that is not a fate you want for anyone. But that's the mission of the church, to save people, to deliver people, as we read in 1 Thessalonians, from the wrath to come. Because, see, these other messages tend to blunt this. There is a real hell. There is a real wrath of God. And the language of the New Testament is explicit enough to say that wrath right now abides on every person outside of Christ. Which is why it really is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the only organization in the whole universe entrusted with the mission of salvation, rescuing the perishing, seeing people delivered from their sins, brought into the narrow way, which is Christ himself, the only organization in the universe officially entrusted with that work is the church. Now, others can help, to be sure. But that is the work of the... And there's nothing. You just think of it for a second. And you realize nothing is more important than that. And again, at risk of overstatement, yes, be a blessing to others, to be sure. But if you're a blessing to others and you don't tell them the only way they can be delivered from the wrath to come, you're not really much of a blessing. Okay. So, so that's why this is of ultimate importance. Now let me, let me almost draw this to a conclusion by the church's mission and the haven. Most certainly, you want to be a people abounding in good works. I don't want anything to be misunderstood as an organism, as cells in the organism. You're ordained for good works. One more text. Isn't it wonderful? We've got our pew Bibles and you can use them and see this for yourself. Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 through 14. You say, where's Titus? Well, you've got to keep going almost to the end of your New Testaments. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14, page 1184 and 85. Remember, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, turning around. The Sermon on the Mount is not first to the church. It's the individual believers. People are gathered before him. A church doesn't turn the other cheek. I don't know what that would even mean. You do. All right. So, so, so there's this individual ethic in the scriptures. We're to be salt. We're to be light. And this is what Paul, the Apostle Paul, is telling minister Titus. Chapter 2, verse 11 Page 1184, the very bottom of the page. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There it is. What is that? That's In that salvation, the path of it, trains us to renounce, literally say no to 
ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See how it always goes back to what's most important. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. There's the church as an organism who are zealous for good works. Each of you should be zealous. And then he says, Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. There's the preacher. Let no one disregard you. So most certainly a people abounding in good works. But what is most important is for the church, making disciples, followers of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And don't leave that out, folks. There's carnal, worldly ways of getting people to come to your church. Paul says we've renounced those things. We've renounced those things that are basically tricks to get people. He uses the illustration of watering down wines. We don't water down the, the pure wine of the Word of God to do that. Anyway, he, but zealous for good works. So, so um, what is most important, making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. He said, how do you do that? Well, one is worship. Remember, the nations are called to worship the Lord. That's the occupation of eternity. It's, it's to give God glory. Now, yes, I know people say, well, all of life is worship. Okay, all I know that. We're a reasonable service, Romans 12. I get that. But there's times God's people gather together to give God the glory that is due to his name. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. You don't do that individually in your devotions, but it's a gathering of people. What does this have to do with discipleship? Your view of the Christian life. I'm in the presence of God. I confess my sins. I receive an assurance of pardon. I'm sanctified by the word of God. I, I fellowship with him at the table. I go forth and serve. There's a power in that being repeated week after week after week, not as a routine, not as a ritual, but as what the Christian life is all about. You see, if worship is a concert, then you're going to think the Christian life is about being amused and entertained. That's not the work of worship. Worship is to give God glory, which is why we're here. So so, so inherent part of forming disciples is worship. As we're going to learn in the Sunday seminary, community. Community is, is the way disciples are made. It's tragic. When people say, oh, I'm part of a big church, nobody even knows my name, I don't know who they are, I really don't care a whole lot, but I go and I get my beating for a week, an hour and a week. No, 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 wait a minute. Acts 2, the disciples were devoted to. They, 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 they bent their schedules so as not to miss the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, the fellowship, and the prayers, community. And, and we're going to be learning a lot more about why that's the main antidote. Well, the gospel is the main antidote. But why in a fragmented culture, you've got to have community. We'll start touching on that in a little bit. The third, you have, you have 
worship, you have community, but you also have evangelism. Acts 8 and verse 4, the disciples are scattered. And, and it's not the apostles, incidentally. They're still in Jerusalem. But all the disciples are scattered, and they went everywhere evangelizing. What have they told people? The good news about Jesus. Nothing real fancy about that. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel's not first. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Although you're probably going to want to say that so people realize how urgent this is. God so loved the world. He gave his son to deliver us from sin and wrath and to give us everlasting life. Why would you not want to talk about that to people? Now, you can do it in foolish ways, I guess. But if you never tell people about the wonder of the gospel, do you really believe it? Okay, so, so, so it's, the, it's a yes, worship. Yes, community is the church gathered. But the church that's not only preaching the gospel as we do in worship and in community, when you're with people here, you tell them about Christ. Anyway, but it's also specifically that work of telling others about the Lord Jesus. And... People will say, you gotta, a pastor's got to be careful with this. You know, I, we're we're going to be involved in outreach for a couple of Saturdays, for a couple of hours each. I realize this is a busy time for everyone. You don't want to saddle people with so much that they just get exhausted. You can't do everything as a church, folks. But you can do some things when it comes to the Great Commission. And we need to pray that the Lord enable us to do even more. That's what it's all about. The mission of the church is the Great Commission. One of our great cloud of witnesses in the elders' prayer room is Dr. J. Gressen Machen, the man that the Lord used as kind of the Martin Luther of the, of the 20th century, the man the Lord used for the founding of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And it's, even though he, he lived in the first quarter of the, the 20th century, died in 1936, 1937 actually. He, um, boy, he writes with such clarity as if he's writing to the church today. And in his day, he wrote this in the 1920s actually, when people were saying, rather 1933, people, people were, were saying, you know, what's the purpose of the church? We're in the Depression. It looks like we may be heading for a war. I mean, come on, what's the purpose of the church? And Dr. Machen so beautifully writes about this, and this is, this is his concluding statement. The responsibility of the church in the New Age, which was the 1930s, is the same as its responsibility in every age. The church is to testify that this world is lost in sin, that the span of human life, no, all the length of human history, is an infinitesimal island, which means something really small, in the awful depths of eternity. That there is a mysterious, holy, living God, creator of all, upholder of all, infinitely beyond all that he's revealed himself to us in his word, and offered us in communion with himself through Jesus Christ the Lord. That there is no other salvation, the church is witness, that there is no other salvation for individuals or for nations except this, 
but that this salvation is full and free, and that whoever possesses it has for himself and for all others to whom he may be the instrument of bringing it, a treasure compared with which all the kingdoms of the earth, no, all the wonders of the starry heavens, are as the dust of the street. Imagine that, he says, that, that, that the treasure of the kingdom, Jesus says this, is worth far more than all of these things. He's got eternity. An unpopular message it is, an impractical message, we're told. But it is the message of the Christian church. Neglect it, and you will have destruction. Heed it, and you will have life. The mission of the church. Make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are thankful, so thankful for yourself. Father, we are thankful for you, Lord Jesus, for you, Holy Spirit, for you. Because you did not need to save fallen people. But you did, and you do. And you did it in a way that satisfies your justice so that mercy might be poured out upon us. God, the more we ponder the work of Christ, the more we marvel at it. Make us to be a church that is always about making disciples of all of the nations, followers of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father, Amen. Amen.